Welcome this morning to Lake Forest Church, Westlake. As I hope you know, we love to have fun around here, and um, we are in the middle of a series called Back to Life, and we just couldn't think of a, a better way to do it than make ourselves look silly through it all. Well, the past few weeks in our study of Nehemiah, we, we captured stories from Nehemiah and are crafting it into this series of Back to Life. Through the story of Nehemiah, we've been challenged to, to pause and to see exactly what God is doing in the life of His people through the life of Nehemiah. And the invitation has been to let part, this part of God's story read us and lead us back to, back to life, back to the life that God designed for us. We think that this life of following Jesus might be summarized in this way. You remember Aaron had a whiteboard up here the last couple, couple of weeks. It begins with our movement upward toward God, with God, responding to His richness and kindness and love toward us as we grow in our relationship with Him. And we do that through the, the exercises and disciplines, the practices of worship and studying Scripture and prayer. These activities help our faith muscles to grow and to become more like Jesus. And last week, we looked at our inward movement with others. When we come to faith in Christ, one of the remarkable and yet overlooked joys of being a follower of Jesus is that we are now part of a family, a church. We belong to something greater than ourselves, and together we grow and mature in our faith. Well, getting connected in a group is, of some kind is one of the more important ways that we think we can move inward in our growth. Some of you are already in a group of some kind, a Bible study, a community group, a men's group. We've got a writer's group. Can I encourage you during this fall season, the, let's take the next three months and really lean in to those that we've already begun to assemble with. Some of us, however, are still looking to find that place of, of connecting. So let me introduce you to a new group called A Circle. Beginning this week, on, on Tuesday, we'll be hosting circles both online and in our church office. And so for the next three months, we'll, we'll begin it this way and, and see how it works for folks. But we'll have the men join us on Tuesdays at 7 a.m., We'll have a leader there available to, to lead a circle, and then women on Thursdays at 10, and, and we even have one exclusively Zoom at 8 o'clock for women. So what will we do at circles? We'll, we'll review the Sunday morning uh, message. We'll take a look at some extra scriptures together. We'll read, and we'll pray. And you don't necessarily have to have watched the service ahead of time. You can connect with new friends during this time. And if you don't make it every week, that's fine too. We'd love to have you come join us at a circle. Well, today we explore now this third dimension. We have been up with our relationship with God. We've been in with others. And today we're going to look at our out with purpose. What kind of purpose? A kingdom purpose. Here's where we're headed this morning. First, we're going to take a look at a special part of, of the wall that gets some really interesting attention from Nehemiah and his story. 
And then I'll invite you in with me into this city, and we'll, we'll take a look around at this, this unexpected place. And then thirdly, we'll, we'll consider the possibility of what we might find here that offers us a model of what living outward with purpose might mean for us. So let's begin. The walls of Jerusalem really get a lot of airtime in the retelling of Nehemiah's story. Now, certainly, it was central. But as, as I was reading the story over the past three weeks, uh, something caught my attention. I've read this story several times over the years, and, but this time I, I saw something new, something that seemed like maybe it should be important. It reminded me of those stereograms. You remember those, those abstract-looking pictures with squiggly colored lines, and if you focused your eyes just right, or maybe looked through it, you'd see a, a shark coming at you, right? A 3D shark. Well, and once you see it, well, it's, it's there forever. You can always see it. Well, such is my reading of Nehemiah. So, so come with me, and let's take another look at the story, and let's see if you can see it. Oh, it's not a shark, by the way. You may remember the people of Israel. They, they lived in the city, a walled city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians had come from the north from about 900 miles away, and they, they invaded the city. They captured it. They destroyed much of it, and they took the majority of the people of Israel into exile back to Babylon leaving just a few behind. Many years later, the, the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem, but the walls around it were not. Nehemiah, who was an Israelite that was born in the city of Babylon, he was a cupbearer, an official in the king's court of Babylon. One day, he gets uh, a Jerusalem update from his brother and some other friends. Things are not going well. Nehemiah says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah moved into action and he makes a fearful request to the king of Babylon. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may give me a pass until I can come into Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress for the temple and the wall of the city. So here he is before the king, and he asks permission to go, and he asks for letters to get himself there, and then almost as if it's a, hey, and one more thing, could I, could I stop off and pick up some supplies? Can I get some timber for the walls, specifically for the gates? And if we read just a bit further into chapter 3, the repairing of 10 specific gates is recorded there. So I keep asking, what's so important about the gates? What's going on? So we began to dig a little deeper. Well, when we look at the wall of Jerusalem, it's no border wall to keep people out specifically, and it's no wire fence. This version around this ancient city was on average 16 feet wide, in some places 28 feet wide, and 
and equally as high. It was fortified to protect the people from the invading enemies at strategic places around the fortress, around the wall, were the gates. And if, you might, if you're like me, you might be thinking, okay, gates. The city had gates so the people could go in. They could be locked in and protected from those invading enemies, right? Yeah, that was one purpose of them. But then it gets really interesting as we dig just a little deeper. You see, there's two words that appear in our text for the word gate. The first one is deleth, which we imagine is the gate, the, the one with the hinges that swing open back and forth, something we shut up and lock because we're trying to be protected. But the second word, the one used most often, is the word she'er. See, this isn't a door. This is a, this is a large space, a place that you go into through a deleth, into a she'er, the space created by that wide, wide wall. A pile of stone and rock creates a she'ir. On a much smaller scale, it reminds me of the tunnels you might go through on I-77 up through West Virginia. So when Nehemiah in chapter 1 stopped to get timber to construct the gates, he was concerned about the she'ir. The people in Jerusalem were, weren't just constructing the doors, although they were, but they were also building, they were reinforcing the she'ir. So why is this important? Why the special attention? Because the Sha'ir, the gates, were the town center of the city. They were central station. Everything social and public happened at the Sha'ir. This is where life was lived. And so let's go in. Let, let's take a look around and look around the gates and see what might be so worthy of Nehemiah's attention and ours this morning. One of the first things that we're going to see when we walk in is commerce. The gates and, and just beyond, even today, are the markets of the city, vendors and tradesmen, people buying, selling, eating. In fact, if you wanted to eat, you probably had to have a job that was there at the gates. Interestingly, this is where we find the woman that we read about in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. You might remember this part where it says, she makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and this supplies the merchants with sashes. She sells her linens at the gate. Her husband is seated at the gate as an elder. We're going to get to him in just a second. You see, the gates are where people worked. It's where the people lived. It's where they bought and sold. This is even where they brought the sick. In New Testament times, this is where we find Jesus in the crowds, healing and touching, being with the people. Secondly, it was a place for civil matters. The gates were a place where legal transactions were, were settled. A few weeks ago, we listened to the story of the story of Ruth. You might remember that, that Ruth approaches Boaz and asks that he might marry her. 
but there was someone else more closely related in line, and it involved some purchase of some land, and Ruth was just part of the deal, I guess, on that. But in Ruth, we read this, where Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. Can you picture him? And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. As he turned aside and sat down, he took ten men of the elders of the city to sit down. Hey, court was in session. A transaction took place there in the Sha'ar, in the city, and the elders witnessing all that was going on. Thirdly, the gates were a place of religious and faith activity. If we Scoot back just a bit further to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. We're told of a remarkable moment, a spiritual moment, and it reads like this in chapter 8, all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra and the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before this great assembly, and he read from early morning until evening like a big Billy Graham crusade. They had a big worship service right there in one of the squares. God and His law were heard publicly and put on display for all. The people wept and worshiped and feasted and celebrated, and it says so because it says they understood. Interestingly, I know that there were unbelievers present, people who didn't trust in Yahweh, and yet their faith was put on display. And finally, at the gates, it was a place of biblical justice. In our world today, there are many versions of justice. Tim Mackey and the Bible Projects help us understand this a biblical view of justice that I think will really help us today. He writes that according to biblical justice that God sets forth, all humans are equal all humans are created in His image, and all humans deserve to be treated with fairness and restorative justice. This means a selfless way for you and I to live life in which people do everything they can to ensure that others are treated well and injustices are fixed. You see, that's the kind of kingdom living justice that God was talking about in Matthew 27. He said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it un unto me. See, it's this kind of justice that was expected to be carried out at the gates. You remember the role of the elders at the gates? They, they sat there primarily to reinforce biblical justice, to, to make sure that everyone in the crowd and those coming in were fairly and justly treated. Doesn't sound like our issues today are new, does it? In Nehemiah 5, we we've hear this about Nehemiah. We're told that he pulled together a great assembly, a town meeting to confront these elders that were sitting there apparently not doing their job. On behalf of God, their job was to restore justice to the poor and widows and the orphan, and they were to offer strangers and aliens the opportunity to come in without judgment into the city. You see, the elders, the leaders, the rulers were present to make sure everyone was treated justly. 
And in this way, the gates were always a place of welcome, not exclusion. The gates were a busy place. As we can see, life was lived at the gates. And so then, we, we ask ourselves this practical question today, how does this provide for us a model of what living out with purpose might mean for us? Think a moment about our spaces, our own sha'er, our own marketplace. You've, you've probably heard this said about church and worship gatherings, that these are the greatest evangelistic tool that we have. Reading this story and seeing what's going on here, the, the gates might make me question that. You see, the temple had already been rebuilt, and all its religious functions were in order. The temple in the city really was the focus of, of God's promises and rep a representation of God's dwelling among His people. But, but here, it, it seems like God's invitation is, is not to bring the people to the temple and find Him, but for those who have found Him to, to take Him to the people. You see, we are to be His ambassadors to be a people of His kingdom in our world, in our city, at our city gate. God did not redeem us so that we could simply be saved, stay in the temple, and one day go to heaven. What did Jesus tell His disciples in, in Matthew 28? He said, go, therefore, and make disciples. Share my life with the world. It was at the city gates that the, the life of God's mercy and His compassion and His grace and His justice were put on display when people went about their business. You see, if we are to be like God who came to live among us, the gates represent where we go and live God's life among the people. It seems that if the kingdom of God is going to spread, it, it, it's got to go through us, His ambassadors. So let's consider what this might look like in our own lives as we live in the gates. First of all, there's the commerce, our, our work. Consider the work that God has us doing. Some of us are homemakers and some are bankers and teachers and bus drivers, and some of us are still students. Do we have this, this outward, purposeful view of the work that we're doing? Is it more than just a job to make money? Maybe this Labor Day, we, we might stop and, and let the Spirit recalibrate our heart toward our work so that it is purposeful for the kingdom. Paul writes that whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not, as human master, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Are you bored? Are you stuck? Do you wonder why God has you where you are? Why don't you ask Him about it today? 
Don't underestimate the work of the Spirit through you, even in the seemingly insignificant and maybe unfulfilling work. Just ask Him. How about our civil lives, our our interactions, our, our civil responsibilities? We live in an increasingly divided and complex world. There are people sitting in the gates that we don't trust. There are people we don't like. There are people running for offices that we might think are evil while our friends think they are good. There are laws we find offensive and and restrictive, and yes, there's room for us to be active and concerned. But let's ask first, what is the appropriate way to live first as a citizen, citizen of God's kingdom, as God's ambassador? Paul, again, has something to say to us. He writes in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He goes on to write a young pastor named Timothy, and he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. No doubt, the next three months, we will have ample opportunity to ask the Lord to help us in this area. Are there thoughts or actions that come to your mind today? Perhaps posts you maybe need to go and edit? Perhaps this is a place to start. Do you ask him, what actions, what words advance God's kingdom in your world? Then there's our faith. I was speaking to a friend this week about his work at a state university. Of course, there are strict policies about sharing faith with students and coworkers. And he said that he, he really adhered and abided by all the rules, but he was regularly ridiculed, called out in public meetings to discredit him and whatever his God was doing. Living freely and openly and speaking about our faith in Christ is, can often be met with, with this kind of hostility. Some of you have experienced it, I know. Yet as a new creation in Christ, our loyalties are first with Jesus. And if Jesus really is the hope of the world, then with the Spirit's help and with His power, we can make Him known. Peter writes to a persecuted church, and under their persecution, he says, remember, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging well, a people here, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
How are you challenged in living your faith boldly? How might you pray this week for those who directly oppose Jesus around you or even because of you? And then finally, justice. What do we do with all of the injustice around us? Remember, the objective of biblical justice is not to make everyone equal, but rather to live and give as though everyone were equal. Micah tells us, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? And so, this week, in what ways is God calling us to, to selfless living, generous giving on behalf of those with less? How wide are our arms of welcome? Living outwardly on purpose is knowing and seeing our new lives in Jesus, that they're being living that, lived out right now in a specific place so that we become the hands and the feet of Jesus, and they come to life as we are on mission with God. Could it be that we have made the mission of God too difficult, too programmed, the job of a committee or the pastor or someone who's really gifted in evangelism? Imagine with me the compounding effect, the compounding impact of you and me with the power of the Holy Spirit living our new lives in Christ as ambassadors of Jesus to the fullest in our city gates. Just imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your grace toward us in your Son. For you indeed have called us out of the darkness of our sin and brought us into the marvelous light that we might proclaim your excellencies in our city, in our work, in our civil responsibilities, in, in our faith as we seek justice. Oh, Lord God, be our strength as we seek to be your ambassadors, to be Jesus incarnate in our world for the glory of Jesus. Help us, we pray, as we live out on purpose for him. Amen.